Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine, where we try to make keeping up on the literature easy, keeping you guys smart. If you are hearing this right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber, and so you will not be receiving the full journal feed podcast, only getting a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry, I like all the articles. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. And remember, we do not ever want money to be a barrier to better patient care, so if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, get in touch, we'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week's summaries, which are brought to you by our authors, well, there's myself, Carmen Wolf, Alex Clark, Kitan Patel, and Clay Smith. And then we jump to the second article. Titled SARS-CoV-2, a virologic rebound with nirmatrelvir ritonavir therapy, an observational study out of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Rebound COVID, it's still a thing, and it's finally something that we're actually learning something about. The concern was that patients were having a resurgence of their COVID symptoms and even spreading the disease after being treated with nirmatrelvir ritonavir paxlovid. This has been popularly termed rebound. COVID's like a bad lover, keeps on crawling back. Anyways, data has been pretty limited on the subject, to the point that claims of virologic rebound have seemed more like rumors than science. At last, these authors put some prospectively collected data into the pot. This was a sub-analysis of the POSITIVES trial. Here they sampled patients who were positive for COVID three times per week for at least two weeks or until they were COVID negative. 72 patients from this group were treated with nirmatrelvir, and 55 had no treatment. The primary outcome was viral rebound within 20 days. So you can see if nirmatrelvir really does cause viral rebound or not, or if everybody just has some degree of rebound. Now, the viral levels that you had to reach to be considered to have virologic rebound have previously been shown to be considered high enough for patients to be at risk of transmission. And these are viral cultures that they're doing, so this is live virus that we're detecting. So these are numbers that we could potentially care about. Rebound occurred in 21% of the nirmatrovir-treated group and only 2% of the untreated group. An absolute difference of 19%, which was significant. Though the treatment group was older and had more immunosuppression, they had also been vaccinated more. So maybe that balances out. Adjusting for those variables, there was still a significant difference and an adjusted odds ratio of 10. It's probably worth noting that no drug-resistant viruses were found at any point during this study, just so you know. So what do we do with this information? More solid evidence of viral rebound? Well, I thought I might be able to change my advice on isolation periods for these patients, but it turns out I won't be able to. Even with rebound, the overall number of days to negative culture was still similar between the groups, so they should both still isolate for about the same period of time. Now, what about if their symptoms return? Then it would be different, right? Uh, not so much. If you received nirmatrovir and felt sick again, this you would think this would be your rebound, but you would be probably wrong. Only half of the patients with virologic rebound reported symptoms and only 30% of the patients who reported symptoms actually had virologic rebound. So, none of it's reliable. Interestingly, when the authors limited their collection strategy to only the specific time points which were measured in the EPIC-HR study, the original Pfizer study, 
then 81% of the virologic rebound events would not have been detected. Another reason to be skeptical of all the industry-run studies, even when they appear to be quite thorough. In a spoonful, it seems like virologic rebound after pneumotravir treatments may indeed be a thing, but it doesn't seem like there's much to do about it or if we should even clearly care about it. And then we skip to the fifth article, titled Multi-Site Oral Amoxicillin Challenges During Pediatric Emergency Department Visits Out of the JAMA Pediatrics. Now, we've talked several times about nice little tools that help us assess for penicillin allergies, whether or not they actually have one, like the PenFast tool. Let's talk about challenging patients who are at low risk of real allergies. Imagine the resources it would save to not send children to allergy clinics for this kind of thing if they just if you just got it out of the way in the emergency department. Brilliance. And where better to safely tempt fate than the emergency department? Certainly better than an allergist's office, I would say. I'd rather have anaphylaxis in an emergency department, personally. So, let's talk about challenging those penicillin allergies in children. This was a cohort study done at three pediatric emergency departments. Patients were stratified as low, medium, or high risk of allergies to amoxicillin based on a survey. A survey that the authors did not share, but seemed to be based on not having high-risk symptoms. Essentially, what I could ascertain was that they were low risk if they didn't have any symptoms in the past that sounded like anaphylaxis. The low risk children were offered a direct oral challenge right there. And with this approach, 98% of low risk patients were able to have their label of amoxicillin allergy safely removed. This isn't surprising. Honestly, even without the survey, you could probably just do this and it would still be pretty darn safe. Something interesting about this study, though, was the willingness of both families and physicians to perform the oral challenge. Across the sites, the caregiver compliance ranged like it was a big range, 87 to 58%, a 30% difference between sites. That's huge. And it was actually pretty similar for the physicians as well, 94 to 56%. So some sites, people just don't want to do these things. Perhaps there's something cultural going on here. It's hard to say. When all parties were willing, the most common reason that it wasn't done was time, though physician concern and waning family interest also played a part. I really, really like this study. This concept is not new at all, but it is effective. Many emergency departments already have protocols for challenging allergies that are unlikely to be real. Honestly, you just have to give it the first dose of the medication that you're probably giving anyways, otherwise you wouldn't have cared about their allergies, but I guess you could do it and just screen for it, but then that's a lot of people. So odds are you're already giving them amoxicillin, let's say for an otitis. And then you just have to give them the first dose and they just stick around a little bit longer. It's very unlikely that they're actually going to have a reaction. So in the grand scheme of things, you're giving them better antibiotics. You're remo removing this label from their chart for the rest of their lives, which is beautiful, and you wasted only a half hour of their time. Not wasted, you well used a half hour of their time. This sounds great. This is the kind of practice which is really whole patient care. In a spoonful, direct oral challenging children with amoxicillin who are at low risk of penicillin allergies is safe and effective. Let's do more of this. Okay, that's our five articles. Let's do a quick wrap up of what we learned from today. From the second article, COVID virus rebound after near matrovir ritonavir treatment might actually exist. But that doesn't mean that you should necessarily care about it since it's not at all clear what the repercussions of this are. We'll need more information for that, I suppose. 
And then from the fifth and final article, penicillin allergies are usually not real, and they should be challenged. This is safe. This study showed it in three pediatric centers. It's really that easy. And all you had to do was ask a few simple questions, and boom, you know they're low risk. Again, if you are hearing this right now, then you are not part of the member's feed, and so you've missed the three articles from this past week. One article looked at foods from the Great British Bake Off. They're not all bad from you, says the BMJ Christmas edition. From the second article, a refresher on Guillain-Barre syndrome. And from the last article that you missed, challenging penicillin allergies in pediatric emergency departments. It's good. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where the newsletter is the best way to make the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space for repetition. Our goal here is for you to read less, learn more, and save lives, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.